What comes to mind when you hear the word revival? Maybe something radical, drastic, miraculous, and out of this world. While those descriptions would be true of some instances throughout history, most real revival has been brought about by the unseen and unpublicized prayer of small groups of people, resulting in the truly radical renovation of human hearts. Today, Lead Pastor Jeff Kincaid begins a new series entitled Catching Fire, Considering Real Revival. A few days ago, I was listening to a new podcast that I discovered as I was kind of uh, scrolling through BuzzFeed. You guys know BuzzFeed, anybody? They were doing like a list of the top podcasts of 2016, and I found this podcast called Heavyweight. Um, I wish I could tell you more about it. I wish I had the time to tell you more about the circumstances behind the story that I'm going to tell you. I don't have the time, but it's really a fascinating podcast. The host of this particular podcast finds himself in the home of a musician that some of you may be familiar with. His name is Moby. Anybody familiar with Moby? Raise your hand if you're familiar with Moby. Okay, a bunch of you guys. Boy, first service, it was like one or two people, and that's it. Well, anyway, Moby's career probably peaked, what would you say, like late 90s, early 2000s, something like that? Um, He's still somewhat popular today, but that was really when his popularity was at its highest. The host is interviewing him, and they begin to talk about success and fame and fortune. And Moby begins then to describe a night in which he was in Barcelona for the MTV Awards. And I guess the hotel that MTV put him up in was the most luxurious hotel in Barcelona. Now, the night before, he had played a huge concert to like over 90,000 people. It It was very successful. And the next night, he was receiving an award at that MTV award show. Now, at the top of this hotel that they put him in were uh, like four three-bedroom, like really uber-plush suites. And to get to these suites, you had to take an elevator as high as you could take, take it. Then you had to get off, and you had to take another elevator. And then you had to get off of that one, and then security would wave you through so you could get on the next elevator to take you to the very top floor. And, you know, only the people staying on the top floor could get there. Now, the four people who were staying on that top floor, and remember, late 90s, early 2000s, so this is a pretty impressive list for that period of time. The four people were Moby, P. Diddy, Madonna, and John Bon Jovi, only people staying on that floor. So here he is at the top of this luxurious hotel and at the top of his professional career. And he says to the host that while he's up there, he is the most depressed that he's ever been in his life. And he said that he began to drink alone there in his room. And as he drinks, he gets more and more and more despondent. He says he began to look for an opening in the windows of his suite so that he could jump from the top of the hotel to kill himself. And like when you're listening to this, you're like, you're like, why? I mean, this dude's got everything that he's ever wanted. And here's, here's, what, he, here's what he says. This is straight from, from Moby. He says, you think 
that when you get to where you want to go, finally, you'll be happy. But when you get to where you want to go, you're just as miserable as you were. In fact, you're even more miserable because you no longer have anything to aspire to. And you feel hopeless because you suddenly realize there's nothing on this planet that can make you happy. In one sense, what Moby experienced that night was, I mean, it was absolutely tragic. What a horrible place to be, to look at your life and to conclude that there's no hope of ever feeling, you know, like alive, to be so overwhelmed with despair when you have everything that you ever wanted, that you lose all desire to live. But in another sense, it was an incredible gift from God to Moby to realize that nothing on this earth can ever satisfy that God-shaped void in his life. I don't know how Moby responded to that, but it was an incredible gift from God. Most of us have never reached the apex of success in the way that Moby did. And most of us haven't experienced the same despondency that Moby experienced that comes from having everything and realizing that you have nothing at all at the same time. But if we're honest with ourselves, most of us have experienced something of this at some level. Like you got something that you always wanted, but when you got it, it just wasn't what it was cracked up to be, you know? I, I, I don't know what it was. Maybe, maybe you were the top student in your class. Maybe you met Mr. Wright and got married. You had a baby. I don't know. You got a promotion. You made your first million. You finally retired, and you can play golf all the time, whatever. By the way, I just, I, I want to say something about that. Uh, a number of years ago, because of the generosity of a church, uh, a previous church that I served in Dallas, I was able to take like a long, uh, like a year-long sabbatical for ministry. And, and I was like, wow, this is awesome. I'm going to play golf every day. This will be the bomb. My, my golf game is going to get really, really good. You know what I discovered? There are only so many rounds of golf that you can play until you're tired of playing golf. I mean, whatever you get, like, like you get what you think that you've always wanted, and then you find out that it's, there's still something missing in your life. It's a, it's a little disappointing. And while you may not be looking for a way to jump out of a window, you may find yourself at a place where you've just accepted that this is the way life is. Maybe that's where you're at today. You've just accepted that this is the way life is. You've given yourself over to a certain cynicism and mundane. Like life has become for you now a series of obligations that you perform dutifully, but without any real passion. Well, we're beginning a new series this morning. At the beginning of this new year that we're, called catching fi- that we're calling Catching Fire. And the idea behind this series is that some of us need a spiritual awakening that will give our lives a new spark of passion and meaning. And others of us need a revival that will renew the fire that once burned in our hearts for Christ. We've been seeking after, we've been chasing, we've been striving for the, wrong, for the wrong things. Fool's gold. And it's wrung us out. It's left us hopeless. It's left us passionless. It's left us cynical, living mundane lives. And we need a spiritual awakening. We need a revival to fire us up again. I sense that there is a sense of, um, I'm going to use the word, Meh, 
that's all over the city of Evansville. Like it just plagues the city of Evansville. Anybody, do you know what meh is? You know what I mean by meh? It's like when nothing sounds good to you. Like you want to go to a movie tonight? Meh. How was the pastor's sermon today? Meh. It's like boredom, deadness, cynicism. And in fact, I think that it may be one of the primary forms of spiritual warfare here in this city, greater than our racial problems, greater than our meth problems, greater than our homelessness problem. And so that you know, it's, just, it's not just me, because I, I can imagine that some of you are like, well, you know, gosh, how snotty of Jeff. He moves in from another city five years ago, and now he's just complaining about our city. Let me tell you something, it's not just me. Every pastor that I have talked to in this city feels the same thing. Like there is this cloud of spiritual malaise that hangs over this city and the churches in this city like a dense fog. And so I and our staff and our elders have begun praying for revival in our church, a kind of revival that pours out onto the streets of Evansville. And as part of that, in the moments that I have left this morning, I want to kick this series off by trying to whet your appetite this morning for revival, for personal revival, for church revival, for citywide revival. And so I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles this morning, if you have them, to the book of Acts, and I'm going to show you something of what revival looks like. And as I said, I hope it will whet your appetite for revival. Turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2, if you have a Bible with you, whether it's digital, hard copy, whatever. Acts chapter 2. And I want to show you this morning three characteristics that are typically included in a revival. Now, there's like all sorts of things we could point to, but we don't have time to talk about everything. So I just want to give you a big picture overview, three characteristics that typically show up in, uh, in revival. Now, the book of Acts, for those of you who may uh, not know this, records like the first real spiritual awakening in the world and the subsequent uh, establishment of this thing that we're all a part of this morning called the church. And I want to start reading at Acts chapter 2, verse 1, and we're going to look at some of the key happenings in chapter 2 and 3, so kind of keep your fingers nimble. Uh, because I do, I, I want to show you some characteristics that are typical of a revival or a spiritual awakening. Let's start reading from verse 1 of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they, the disciples, were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Okay, before I explain what's happening here, I just want you to write this down. Revivals typically include an outpouring of the Spirit of God on believers. Typically include an outpouring of the Spirit of God on believers. That is what is happening here. The Holy Spirit is coming down on Jesus' disciples here to empower them for what he's called them to do. Now, before I go any further, I, just, I, I want you to know that because of the unique nature of the book of Acts, you're going to see in these passages a number of like big visible miracles that characterize this first spiritual awakening. Now, there's a reason for that. The movement needed a jump start. 
people needed to know that this movement that these disciples were leading was of God, that it was, very, that it was real. So this spiritual awakening included these vir- visible miracles. Uh, and in this particular instance, this thing called tongues. But as you will see in a moment, most revivals, most spiritual awakenings don't include those kinds of visible, visible miracles. They don't have to include those kinds of visible miracles, okay? So now let me explain what's happening here because any mention of tongues, any mention of, the, of, of, of tongues is very controversial in church circles. So before you jump to any conclusions about what this passage means, hang on with me for just a moment. What's happening here in this passage? Okay, does anyone remember the story of the Tower of Babel back in the book of Genesis? Anybody remember that? Okay, great. It's a fascinating story. Essentially, what's happening in that story is that all of the people of the earth are trying to come together in opposition to God to build a great and magnificent city called Babel. So humanity's in rebellion against God. They're determined to make this, they're determined to make a name for themselves, to prove that they really don't need God at all. And so in opposition, they try to build this big city. Now, to stop them from doing so and to stop sin from spreading so quickly, here's what God does. He causes all of humanity spoke one language at this point. One language. And so at the Tower of Babel, what God does is that he separates people. He uh, causes all of the people there to speak a different language. So like this is where languages began, okay? This was a curse on man's sin. No longer could all of the people there express themselves to one another in the way that they once had. They couldn't understand one another anymore. Language broke down as a result of God's curse on man's sin. Now, what in the world does that have to do with this particular passage in Acts chapter 2? What's happening here is that the Holy Spirit, for a moment in time, is reversing the curse of Babel, just for a short time, to give credibility to these men and their mission of spreading the gospel and to sort of advertise for what one day the kingdom of God is going to be like where language will no longer be a barrier to people, okay? So just for a short time, he's reversing the curse of Babel. And what's happening is that these disciples are speaking eloquently in languages, tongues, that they've never studied before. Now, look, I know that some of you were raised in church backgrounds where they told you that tongues were like an angelic language of some kind, like it was a prayer language that was only known to you. Now, look, that's just not what tongues are biblically. Now, I'm not saying God isn't capable of doing that. Please understand, right? I'm not not saying God isn't capable of doing something like that, of giving you some sort of individual language. Perhaps he does that. But that's not what the Bible is talking about when it's talking about tongues. And if you look down at the verses that follow, like between verses 5 and 12, you'll see that very clearly because these verses describe all of the different nationalities of people who were present in Jerusalem at that time. And in verse 11, all of these people say, they say, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages, tongues, okay? 
So this outpouring of the Spirit reversed the curse of Babylon by allowing these people to hear the gospel spoken in their own language by men who had never studied the language at all. That is what the outpouring of the Spirit looked like in this first spiritual awakening in the world. Okay? But I don't want you to think that an outpouring of the Spirit always has to come with those kinds of physical miracles. Because sometimes it doesn't have anything to do with those kinds of miracles. You guys mind if I give you a brief history lesson here for just a moment? Well, if you do, what are you going to do? You, know, you don't have any choice. You got to listen to me. Here we go. I'll make it brief, and it will be incredible. That's my Donald Trump imitation. Okay? When the Puritans and uh, uh, the, the early pilgrims arrived in America, they came to America with a fervent faith, and they had a vision of establishing a godly nation. But within a century, just within one century, that fire to build a godly nation had cooled. Why? Well, see if this doesn't sound familiar to you. The children of the original immigrants were more concerned with increasing wealth and comfortable living than they were furthering the kingdom of God. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And the same spiritual malaise could be found throughout the American colony. The the philosophical rationalism of the Enlightenment began spreading its influence among the educated classes, and then the rest of the people were preoccupied with the things of this world. Stepping into this in the 1730s was a young pastor by the name of Jonathan Edwards. He, He became the pastor of a church in Northampton, Massachusetts. And when he became the pastor of this church, he was just shocked by the deadness of this church. And he was particularly concerned about the immorality of the young people in his church. So in 1734, Jonathan Edwards preaches this series of sermons. And you know what? He, just, he preaches it on the gospel, on, on the idea of justification by faith. In other words, In other words, the moment that you believe in Jesus Christ, in God's eyes, you are justified. Your sins are forgiven. You're given the righteousness of Christ by faith, not by works. So this is what he preaches. Just just that, that he begins preaching a series of sermons on that. Over a six-month period, like incredible things start happening. And he wrote uh, later of the results of that sermon series. And he says this, and I think, I think we've got a slide uh, for you on this. He writes, By December, the Spirit of God began extraordinarily to set in. Revival grew, and souls did, as it were, come by floods to Christ. Over a six-month period, Edwards recorded 300 conversions in just his church and his town. Now, again, this didn't happen by any, you know, no visible miracles, no tongues, nobody did any, you know, healings or anything like that. It was just the preaching of the gospel. And this particular revival, known as the First Great Awakening, began to spread throughout the American colonies, and it even spread overseas into Europe. And what happened was just literally crowds, thousands upon thousands of people who previously had showed no interest in Christianity, suddenly, without any explanation, began to flock into the church, began to pack the churches out to listen to the Word of God preached. And they were converted 
in droves. Often the crowds were so large that they couldn't fit into churches and the pastor would just have to move everybody out and they would just speak out in the open air. Like people began to feel just like they might be just walking down the street and they would, they would just hit their knees and they'd begin to cry because they felt a conviction of their sin and their need for Christ. This is what this outpouring of the Spirit looked like. And it was just the preaching of the Scriptures that brought it about. So here's what I'm trying to say. While revival typically includes an outpouring of the Spirit on believers, it isn't always and it usually is not accompanied by miraculous signs. But it can come. That kind of outpouring of the Spirit can happen. And there's no reason it can't happen here just like it did then. Okay, let's move to the second characteristic of, uh, of revival. I want you to skip over to verse 40 of chapter 2, verse 40 of Acts chapter 2. And as a result of this outpouring of the Spirit, one of Jesus' disciples, a guy by the name of Peter, uh, begins to preach to all of the people assembled there. And he begins to preach like with this uncharacteristic boldness. And verse 40 summarizes what happened. It says, With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Uh, Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers, listen to this, all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple court. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. And notice what it says, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to write this down. Here's the second characteristic of revival. And this is, I'm going to just, let me tell you, this is clunkily worded. I just, I worked and worked and worked to try to find an easier way to say it. Couldn't find it. Here you go. Revivals typically include an attraction to the change that the Spirit of God has brought about in believers' lives. In other words, this outpouring of the Spirit comes, people begin to be radically changed, and people outside begin to go, Like their minds are blown. They're like, what's happening? I want a piece of that. And you can see that in this passage. Not only are people being converted in droves, like 3,000 people in just one day, but they're also being so profoundly transformed that people recognize that this can't be anything else but supernatural. And they want a part of it. These people were being changed in such a radical way that their concern for one another extended to selling their property and their possessions and giving to anyone who had need. Now, that had to be supernatural. There wasn't some preacher asking them to do it. Like, you know, they say that the last thing that gets converted in a person's life is his wallet. And these people, like, immediately, they're just giving to anybody who has need. And people outside were so attracted to these people and what was happening in in them that they were being converted daily. 
So this is what happens is that this outpouring of the Spirit begins to change people within the church so significantly that people want a part of it. I mentioned that there was an enormous outpouring of the Spirit of God in, in the 1700s that spread throughout the world. That was the first Great Awakening. There was a second Great Awakening uh, in the 1800s. In 1855, uh, London churches, churches in London were just, they were dead. They were in an enormous amount of trouble because they were just dead. And there was this great big Baptist church uh, called New Park Street Chapel, and it seated like 1,500 people in the church, but only about 150 people or so were ever there, right? So the church calls a new pastor, and they call this, he's a 19-year-old kid. They call this 19-year-old kid to preach. This kid's never finished high school, and this kid's name was Charles Spurgeon. Anybody familiar with Charles Spurgeon? Raise your hand. Okay. Spurgeon, what he did was he began to challenge people to begin to pray for revival, like to begin to pray for the souls of other people. And he even developed like this structure where there was always a group of people praying for him whenever he preached. There were 150 people, like I said, there were 150 people or less in that church when he got there. One year later, there were 3,000 people coming. And he baptized 300 converts that year. And it got crazier. They had to knock the building down because people were packing it out. So while they were building a new building, they, went, they started meeting in a place called the Surrey Music Hall that seated 10,000 people. And sure enough, 10,000 people come to be a part of this thing. At one point, they went to another place that seated 27,000 people. And sure enough, 27,000 people showed up. In the year 1859, this revival broke out across the world. In Northern Ireland, one-third of the population was converted to Christianity. At least one million people were converted in America at a time when the population of America was 35 million people. Now, I did the figuring on this. I ciphered this out. That would be the equivalent today of over 9 million people being converted in America alone. Can you imagine the shockwaves that would hit the media if something like that happened. Anderson Cooper might fall over at his desk if he heard that kind of thing happen. And do you know what started that revival? Was just the one in America. Do you know what started that revival in America? A prayer meeting of 10 people in New York City that I'm going to tell you more about later on in this series. That's what, that's what started the revival in America. And then you know what started the revival in London? A prayer meeting of less than 150 people. That's what started it in London. People in New York, people in London, who were once self-consumed and self-oriented, those people were so changed by the Spirit of God that they began to pray for the lives and the souls, the hearts of other people. And people were so attracted to that, and they were so attracted to other changes that they were seeing in believers' lives that they wanted to know the God who was at work within these people. That's what it's like. This is what happens in revivals. There's this enormous outpouring of the Spirit of God. And as a result of this enormous outpouring of the Spirit of God, people's lives begin to be changed in these radical ways. And other people decide, I want that. I want some of that. 
I want my life to look like that. These people have found a sense of purpose and meaning and fulfillment and happiness in life and joy and peace. I want that. That's what happens. That's the second characteristic of revival. Okay. So they typically include an outpouring of the Spirit on believers. Uh, There's an attraction to the change that the Spirit of God is bringing about in people's lives. And finally, here's the third characteristic of revival. Again, we could talk, we could say, you know, we could say a dozen more things, but I'm just trying to give you the big picture. Revivals typically include an impact on the community surrounding the church. Revivals typically include an impact on the community surrounding the church. Now, I, I need to stop and say something. It just, you know, I just thought of this. It just occurred to me. I hope that you're not thinking, when I use the word revival, I hope you're not thinking about, like, you know, when a church holds a revival and they have some visiting pastor come in and maybe he sets up a tent outside the church and he does a revival. That is not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about, like, mass revivals that come from an outpouring of the Spirit of God. And they're really spontaneous. It's not, it's not like, you know, you set something up and you're holding a revival. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? Okay, good. All right. So here's the third point. Revivals typically include an impact on the community surrounding the church. Chapter 3 of uh, the book of Acts. Peter and another disciple, John, they heal this man who had been physically handicapped. So he's a disabled guy, and as a result, he's a homeless man. And Acts chapter 3 verse 9 records, as a result of this healing, Acts chapter 3 verse 9 records the reaction of the community to this. When all the people saw him, this man, this disabled man, walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So as a result of the outpouring of the Spirit, this disabled homeless man is healed and he's able to, to work as a result and all of that. And so the people are not only amazed at the impact that the Spirit of God is having on people inside the church, but they're equally amazed at the impact the Spirit is having on people and the community outside the church. Now again, this is an example in which a visible miracle happened. But as I said earlier, it doesn't always happen to ha- have to happen this way and probably rarely does. A few minutes ago, I told you about the first great awakening. I don't know if you know this, but as a result of that great awakening, more and more young men decided to go into the ministry, and people began to become uh, much more concerned about, uh, about education. Christians began to become concerned about education. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Princeton University, Rutgers, Brown, Dartmouth Universities, they were all established as a direct result of the Great Awakening. That's why they're there today. They were established because of the Great Awakening. Okay? People today are still getting educations in those schools. I don't know if you know this, but many of the hospitals and orphanages in America were started by people who were converted, by Jesus, uh, converted to faith in Jesus Christ. In countries and villages where the gospel spreads through them, there's tremendous change that happens in crime levels. There's tremendous changes in the attitudes and the relationships between management and labor. There's tremendous social healing within families. There's always this tremendous impact on society. And that's why the result always of revival is that people of different social classes, having been one to Christ, begin to bear fruit in the culture. 
bringing mercy and justice to that culture. And so in, this, in, in, in that way, as a result of the Great Awakening, a large number of Christians brought change to their communities in all of their dimensions, in, excuse me, in all of the community's dimensions, so economic, social, artistic, political, intellectual, and so on. Does that sound familiar to you? Because right there in our vision statement on the wall, that's exactly what we're saying that we as a church want to do. Read that vision statement with me, if you would. The vision of City Church is to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond through a movement of people who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, that's what we're talking about, exactly what's happened here. As a result of the changes in people's lives, as a result of the outpouring, the Spirit of God, people become changed, and there's change that happens in the community as well. Now, here's the thing. Throughout this series, we're going to be talking about revival. And I want to challenge you to stop chasing the fool's gold of success and fame and wealth and popularity and to stop settling for a life of cynicism and mundane and to allow the Spirit of God to catch fire within you. To be the kind of person who does the most countercultural thing that you can do today. Do you realize that there's only one countercultural thing left to do? Like you can't pierce more things on your body than are already pierced. You can't get more tattoos on your body than people already have. You can't wear your hair any longer or any shorter than people already do. There's nothing more countercultural to do except this. And that is to defy the hopelessness and the despair and to give your life away in the name of the one to whom all of creation will one day bow, the name above all names, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the most countercultural thing that you can do today. In fact, it's the only countercultural thing that you can do today. In preparation for the rest of this series, I'd like to just ask you this week to be, as, to be asking yourself a couple of questions. And maybe you could make this like the focus of your prayer this week. Here's, here, here's, here's one of the questions. Is it possible that I have settled for the mundane, the cynical, We're bought into the hoax that success, popularity, fame, wealth brings happiness. That's that's really the first question that I'd like for you to consider. Is it possible that I have bought into this idea that success, fame, wealth, popularity, whatever brings happiness? That I've settled for the mundane and the cynical as a result. Okay, here's the second question that I'd like you to ask. Do I need a personal revival? Do I need a personal revival? You understand, I'm not saying, do I need? I mean, like, do you you would pray that, do you need a personal revival? You understand that, right? Like, I need, I do need a personal revival. I can tell you that right now. The question is, do you need a personal revival? Would you be just asking yourself that this week and praying about that this week? Let me ask you something. What if one day, Like a hundred years from now, some pastor somewhere is talking about the revival that broke out 
in like this place called Evansville, Indiana. And it started in this church. It was called City Church. And this revival spread around the world. Would you want to be a part of that? This might be a sign of that spiritual malaise that I was talking about earlier. Do you want to be a part of something like that? Would you want to leave a legacy like that? Would you want to be part of a movement of God that spreads around the world? Would you want to be a part of changing other people's lives, of seeing people converted and seeing people be radically changed in such a way that hundreds and thousands of people in this city are changed? Would you like to be part of something like that? You know, what God can do in this city is greater than what government can do, and I'm for government. But God can do things that government can never do. He can change people from the inside out. And he can do things, he can do things that education can't do. And I am all for education. Get as much education as you can. But God can do things that education can't do. He can teach people things and change them from the inside out. He can do things that commerce in this city can't do. I'm all for business. I'm pro-business. But God can do things that businesses can't do in a city. Stick with us throughout this series. Search yourself, let the Spirit of God search you. And we'll learn how individually and collectively that we can catch the fires of revival here at City Church that could spread outside onto the streets of this city. Would you pray with me? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who are we to think that we could start a revival? Well, the answer is that we're nobody. But you often use nobodies to create, to do incredible things in your name. And so, Lord, we ask that throughout this series that you would create a sense of passion, um, ignite a spark within our souls. Some of us need a spiritual awakening. Some of us need a revival. Lord, would you do that in our lives? Would you start with me? I need it. Would you start it here, Lord? Father, would you make us the kind of place that is hungry and thirsty for more of you, that we refuse to settle for the mundane, that we refuse to be cynical, that we stop searching for fool's gold, and that we begin to be concerned about what you're concerned about, and that is the spread of your kingdom. Would you do that here in this city, Lord? And would you do that here in this church? And I pray that that would spread to other churches in this city. And we pray that it would be recognized as an outpouring of your spirit. It wouldn't be something that is of men, of human beings, but that it would be something that is clearly supernatural in nature. We pray for that. Lord Jesus, we pray for this in your name, not in our, not to glorify us, not to glorify people, but to glorify you in your name only. We worship you. An outpouring of the Spirit on believers, an attraction to the change in their lives, and an impact on their community. A few of the marks of real revival. 
Well, thank you so much for tuning in to the City Church Evansville podcast. Make sure to tune in next week as we continue this brand new series, Catching Fire. And if you're in the area, please join us this coming Sunday at 9.15 or 11 a.m. We're located at 314 Market Street in downtown Evansville.